Who does not know that spiritual religion never brings a man the world's praise? It has never done and it never does. It, entail the, it entails the world's disapprobation, the world's persecution, the world's ridicule, the world's sneers. The world will let a man go to hell quietly and never try to stop him. The world will never let a man go to heaven quietly. They will do all they can to turn him back. Let a young person go to every ball, every theater, every race course and utterly neglect his soul and no one interferes. But let him begin to read his Bible and be diligent in prayers. Let him decline worldly amusement and be particular in his employment of time. Let him seek an evangelical ministry and live as if he had an immortal soul. Let him do this. And the probability is all his relations and friends will be up in arms. If a man will become a decided evangelical Christian, he must make up his mind to lose the world's favors. He must be content to be thought by many a perfect fool. Those words from the great Reformed Anglican J.C. Ryle are as true today as they were when he said them. And according to our text in Scripture today, they're actually as true today as they were in the very first century. For our text is going to be, at least according to the Gospel of John, really the very first time, maybe second time, that Jesus' closest disciples are going to begin to just taste how hard it can be to follow Christ. They are going to start seeing just how much scorn and disrespect the world is willing to give those who follow the Lord. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60, and we will read through verse 71 together. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. When you've found those verses in your Bibles, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60, Thus saith the Lord. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would try and betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. So the crowd that followed Jesus across the lake after seeing his miracles to hear him teach in the synagogue are so offended by his sermon that we've been covering for the last three or four weeks 
that they finally decide to walk away. Even after being convinced that this man is in fact a miracle working prophet, his words are so offensive to them that still they say this man is not worth following. Now I need to give an important clarification that um, a theologian R.C. Sproul was really helpful in me and reminding me to make this to you, which is that there is a big difference between giving offense and taking offense. There's a big difference. Just because someone takes offense does not mean that offense was actually given. I maintain to you that Jesus didn't say anything offensive in this sermon. He said nothing offensive in John chapter 6. He was not, in other words, giving offense. We don't want to think of Jesus as a provocateur. Someone who's provocative. Someone who tries to provoke people just for the sake of provoking them. He just likes to offend people. He just likes to get people, you know, in, in a tizzy. That's not what Jesus is doing. All Jesus was doing was just sharing objective truth that these people needed to hear. He's just a truth speaker. He's not giving offense. He's just giving truth. But the reality is that what Jesus said was highly offensive to these people. So he didn't give offense, but they took it. We live in a fallen world. And because of our fallen condition, the fact of the matter is that sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes the truth is offensive to our preconceived ideas, to our worldviews, to our sensibilities and our actions. And so while I do not believe that Jesus was giving offense, I mean, you could argue we talked last week, maybe when he switched to the metaphor, he was provoking them just a little bit. But generally speaking, Jesus is just speaking the truth, but they are taking great offense. They are taking so much offense that they decide to walk away. And it might be worth our time, just briefly, to re-examine what was so offensive about this message. I think that in order for us to apply what we see in our passage today, we need to remind ourselves, what is there in John 6 that caused so much offense? And the reason I think this is helpful is because I think far too many Christians narrow in the offensive part of John 6 on one little part. Like everybody sees what is offensive about John 6. Well, it's when Jesus starts talking in that really harsh language about you have to chew on my flesh and drink my blood or else you can't be saved. That's what's offensive. That's what's making them so offended. Now, there's no doubt that that is part of why they're offended. The text is very clear about that. Let's go back to last week. Look at verse 52. John 6 verse 52. Oops, I went the wrong direction. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right? So Jesus' message about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that really was a majority reason, a very important reason why the crowd is so offensive. And that's a matter of fact what's being referenced in our verse in verse 60. Again, when they say this is a hard saying, they're, they're primarily talking about this cannibalistic metaphor that Jesus uses. So that is offensive. But as I look back on the chapter from afar, it is very, very clear to me that that is not the only thing offensive about Jesus' message. We find the crowd grumbling and being confused and being angry before Jesus gets to that portion and after when he says other things. It is not just the eating and drinking language that's offensive to these people. Look at verses 41 and 42. 
This is long before Jesus has used this harsh language of eating his body and drinking, or eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Look at verse 41 through 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? The first time the crowd grumbles and gets confused and offended is not when Jesus is talking about eating him. It's when Jesus claims to have been a heaven-born person who came into the world. In other words, the incarnation is what offended them first. How can this guy, who we know was born of Mary, we know his parents, how can he claim to be a divine person who lived in heaven? He literally is a human being born from Mary. He's not God. He's not a divine person who came down from heaven. They're offended by the incarnation, the descent of Christ. And I submit to you that if I, were to, if I had to pick one thing that was offensive about this sermon in John 6, this would be the issue. This is what they are most offended by. And the reason I say that is because when Jesus finally confronts them in our passage, Jesus goes back to this issue, not the eating and drinking, not the Calvinism. He goes back to this issue. Look at verses 61 and 62 from our passage today. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Jesus appeals to his ascension because it's the very opposite act of his descension. In other words, Jesus is going back to this larger idea that he is claiming to be a person from heaven. And he's saying, if you don't believe me now, you'll believe me when you see me go back. <laughs> I'm going to go back to where I came from, and then maybe you won't be so offended by the fact that I claim to have come down from where I came from. Jesus is clearly referencing his ascension, which is a reaction to their offense at his descension. The Jews are upset and confused and offended that Jesus claims to be a divine person who came down from heaven. So yes, they are, they are offended by the body and blood language, but they're also offended by the incarnation language. And I would argue but that's still not the end of the offense they've taken. They are even offended by what we talked about two weeks ago, which is the absolute sovereignty of God and salvation. Jesus first brought this up in verses 37 through 40, and we weren't given any indication in that part of the sermon that they were upset by this. But it does show up again in our passage. Look at verses 64 through 66 with me. But there are some of you who do not believe... For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So yet again, just like in 37 through 40, Jesus is recognizing that his wonderful words of life don't seem so wonderful to everybody. These people don't believe. They don't find these words wonderful. They find them offensive and hard. And Jesus comforts himself. Why is it that sometimes my words work and sometimes they don't? Is it my fault? No. My words only work for those whom the Father has granted to come to me. 
And it's when Jesus goes back to that point that you cannot believe in Jesus unless God has elected you and drawn you. That's the straw that breaks the camel's back. That's when they say, okay, I'm done. I'm out of here now. And so how can we summarize if it's the incarnation and the eating the body and drinking the blood and the sovereignty of God, what is it that's so offensive about John chapter 6? And I think we can summarize it this way. The gospel. The gospel is what's so offensive about John chapter 6. Not the eating his flesh and drinking his blood alone. Not the sovereignty alone. Not the incarnation. The Jesus story. The whole gospel of Jesus, that is what is so offensive to these people. They are offended that Jesus is claiming that the Father sent him, a divine person, from heaven in the likeness of human flesh to die for sins, for the sins of God's elect people who will be made up of people from all nations. That's what's offensive in John chapter 6. The fact of the matter will always be that the most offensive thing you believe as a Christian is the gospel itself. The most offensive thing you believe as a Christian is the very heart of the Christian message. There's no doubt that in every culture there are doctrines downstream of the gospel, doctrines that are related to the gospel that the culture will find offensive. I'm not saying it's the only offensive thing, but those downstream offenses are what we call subjective offenses. Meaning, whether Christian doctrine is offensive or not depends on where you live. It's not universally offensive. It depends on where you live. To give an example, if I were to go to any major American city today and stand on a street corner and say, homosexuality is perverted and wicked, that would be very offensive to the vast majority of people walking by. And in some places in the Western world, like Canada and the UK, you can be arrested for saying that. Even in our own country, I would be risking hate crime, legislation, fines, potential arrest. So to say something negative about homosexuality is extremely offensive. But if I did the exact same thing today in Russia, or the Middle East, or Africa, no one would bat an eye. They would amen me. So our view that homosexuality is wicked, is that offensive or not? It depends. It certainly wouldn't have been offended if he threw it in in John 6. All of the Jews who believe in the Old Testament scriptures where you punish homosexuality by death, do you think they'd be offended by that? No. So our views on homosexuality are not that offensive. It depends on where you live. Our views on abortion are not that offensive. It just depends on what time and person believes. The one thing you can count on being offensive to every person in every age in every nation is the gospel. That's always offensive. That is always the most offensive thing we take. By the way, the Apostle Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul covers the whole world here. Jew, Greek, doesn't matter. The cross is what's foolishness to the world. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the gospel, is what's ultimately going to offend the world. Not our views on social issues, the gospel. And I submit to you that it was the gospel in John 6 that offended these people. The message of Jesus to them, his gospel, is hard, offensive, and foolish. And that's why they leave. They leave because of the gospel. But the good news for Jesus is that not, not everybody leaves. The disciples, the inner group of disciples, his chosen twelve, they choose to say. Only we need to put a little asterisk on the twelve. John goes out of his way to put a little asterisk on the twelve. Technically, one of the twelve is choosing to stay, but we know he's not really a follower. Right? John is reminding us that Jesus is divine. He knows the hearts of men. So he knows that of the twelve who remain with him, one of them is a wolf in sheep's clothing. One of them is Judas. Judas doesn't really love Jesus. Judas is not really interested. He's going to betray Jesus. So we have to qualify it. Right? The twelve stay, but really eleven stay. Truly stay. Eleven of his inner group have found that even in the midst of this difficult teaching, even in the midst of our friends and family and colleagues walking away, Jesus is worth sticking by. Jesus is still worth following. And I think that this is sort of the central narrative of the passage today. Peter and Jesus' interaction. And so we're going to really focus on that today. And I think that this will be the most helpful in terms of application. Because I'm willing to guess that if you've been a Christian for really any reasonable length of time you've already experienced in one way or another that following Jesus is not always easy. Especially as it pertains to how the world treats us. Now, I, let me be clear. I don't want to be too dramatic here, especially with 4th of July right around the corner. Perhaps it's important to remember that certainly we have been very blessed to grow up in the time, age, and country that we have grown up in. We certainly have not experienced persecutions the way many of our brothers and sisters around the world, both today and then especially in history, have had to go through. So by God's grace and His mercy alone, not because we're deserving or more worthy, but just by His sheer mercy, our persecutions have been relatively very mild. But they are persecutions nonetheless. Social persecutions, like just because you're not being tortured or beheaded or thrown in prison or having your children taken from you, social persecution is still difficult. It's still persecution nonetheless. I would submit to you that if you were to go back in time and ask the disciples if this was a fun little experience for them, they would say no. I don't think the disciples particularly enjoyed the bread of life discourse and all of its outcomes. This is still a difficult way that the world treats us. The world treats us as fools. The world abandons us and they disrespect us. We experience that in our lives and that is what the disciples experience here in the passage. Because make no mistake about it, when the crowd is offended by Jesus, logic demands that they are, they are offended by anyone who agrees and follows Jesus. When the Jews reject Jesus, they're rejecting the disciples just as much as they are rejecting him. By the way, Jesus is going to make this point crystal clear later on in the book, Gospel of John. If the world hates you, know that it hate, has hated me before it hated you. 
There's no getting out of it. If you're with Jesus and they hate Jesus, then they hate you too. If they, if they hear Jesus' message and they say, that's stupid, and then you come along and say, I agree with it, what does that make you? Stupid. If you're with Jesus and you agree with Jesus and they dislike Jesus and his teachings, they dislike you. The Jews are not just rejecting Jesus in John 6. They're rejecting the disciples. And that is exactly what prompts Jesus to test them. Jesus knows that this is a difficult experience. Jesus knows that this is hard for them too. Jesus knows that this is persecution for them just as much as it is for him. And so that's why he turns and says, Do you want to go away too? Do you want to leave too? Because I, I submit to you, uh, the text doesn't explicitly say this, I submit to you that Jesus is well aware that the disciples are actually going through a pretty similar experience to everybody else. Meaning, I think they're a little offended by Jesus too. I think they're a little confused too. I don't think we get the impression from this text that they're, everything's honky-dory for them. Right? It's not like when Jesus says, do you guys want to go away too? Peter's response is, talking to us, why, why, why would we want to go away? This, this, is, this is super easy. Yeah, this is, this is just pff, gospel 101, Christianity 101. There's no problem with my, I don't know why all those other dopes are leaving. I'm, I'm perfectly fine. I don't think that that's what's going on here. I think this teaching is hard for them. It's difficult for them. Yet in the midst of this difficulty, as they, they, they now are experiencing for really the first time that they have a choice to make. Jesus or their reputation. They must choose between their friends, their kinsmen, their colleagues, or Jesus. Jesus has put this dichotomy before them. Me or them. Who's it going to be? Jesus is, worth, is asking, am I worth losing your reputation? Am I worth losing your family and friends over? And by God's grace, Peter seems to think so. Let's read verses 67 through 69 together. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter, essentially, in his answer, he's speaking on behalf of the other disciples, which is his custom. He does that all throughout the Gospels. And I think the general sense for Peter is that even though th these things are hard, and even though they're slightly offensive, I would rather be uncomfortable with Jesus than comfortable without him. I would rather be offended with Jesus than unoffended without him. That is essentially what Peter is telling us here. He has decided that there are reasons to stick with Jesus even when it's hard or offensive, even when it costs us everything. And what are those reasons? I think Peter gives us three, and all of which have an immediate relevance and application for us today. Peter gives us three reasons why you should choose Christ over the world, or to put it even more generally, I'm calling this three reasons to keep following Christ when the going gets tough. Three reasons to stick with Christ when the going gets tough. 
The first reason that Peter gives us, I'm phrasing it this way, Jesus has no competition. Because Jesus has no other competition. Jesus has no genuine competitors. Look at verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Let's stop there. Peter answers Jesus' question with a question of his own, only his is rhetorical. And I must say, just as a personal note, this verse, not even 69a, has been one of the most comforting and important verses in my personal life. This has always been one of my most cherished and treasured verses in all of the Bible. Because Peter here is recognizing that Christ really has no genuine competition. No matter how tough Jesus' doctrines can be, no matter how hard of a life Jesus calls us to go through, it's not getting any better away from him. It's not getting any better outside of him. And this is why I've been always so saddened and confused by apostates. Things go wrong and people leave Christ and it just, it breaks my heart because I, I can to some degree understand with the, the original pain they go through, right? I, I'm not the only one. I can understand struggling with Christian doctrine. Some of these things are hard to believe. Some of these things are hard to make sense of. Some of them are hard to put together. This says this, but this sounds this and they don't seem to fit. How do you? Doctrine can be a painful, difficult thing. I can, I can relate to that. I have questions that I don't have answered right now. And I can understand going through persecution and suffering and knowing that Christ is sovereign. So he could stop this if he wants to and he won't. Why am I here? Why is he doing this to me? I can relate to all of those. I get that. But what I can't make sense of, what I can't relate to, is how apostasy makes the situation any better. That's what I don't get. In other words... When they're confused or they're hurt and they leave Jesus, where do they go? What solves their problem? Do they go to one of the religions where God never took on flesh? God never sacrifices anything for his people? How are your problems made better by turning to the God who willingly took on the same problems as you and then turning to gods who have no familiarity, no acquaintance with suffering or sacrifice of any kind. They are cold, distant, abstract concepts in the sky that have no clue what it is to be human. How is your life made better with that God? That's better than Jesus? It doesn't make sense to me. These silent gods outside, distant from our human experience, that that helps you more than Jesus? Or what about all these other religions where eventually they make God or the gods, plural, into essentially incompetent fools? In so many religions of the world, God is either everything, which means he's nothing, or the God of the system like Mormonism, evolves and changes and makes mistakes and learns along the way. The God of the Greeks, the gods, they're making mistakes, messing things up, trying to fix. We've got a bunch of world religions out there where God is an incompetent fool. That's better than Jesus? That made you feel better? I just don't get it. Who's better than Jesus? Now, we all know in our culture, in our society, there's a brand new religion, barely existed throughout the history of the world, brand new religion that a lot of people flock to. It's called atheism. And they say, listen, here's my solution. I just go to no God at all. But let me submit to you, atheism is no better. 
Notice, by the way, notice Peter's answer. Jesus asks him, do you want to leave as well? And notice that Peter does not say, where would we go? He says, to whom shall we go? Peter realizes something really important. Following someone is an inescapable reality. There's no option for you to just simply not follow. There's no option for you to say, I'm just not going to be a disciple of any kind. Discipleship is an inescapable concept. The question is not whether you will be a disciple. The question is, to whom will you be a disciple? Everyone will be a disciple. Everyone has a master. Everyone has a God. There's no such thing as a godless, masterless existence. Everyone you know is a slave. Everyone you know is a follower. Every single person. The question is, to whom are you enslaved? To whom are you following? Are you going to follow Muhammad up to Allah? Are you going to follow Joseph Smith up to the, the plural plurality of gods in Mormonism? Who are you going to follow? That's the question. And when someone flees to atheism, they are not transitioning from following Christ as God to following no one. They are transitioning from following Christ as God to following themselves as God. They are the God they're now worshiping. They're the God of their system. They're following themselves. That's atheism. It's self-worship. I'm God now. I call the shots now. I decide reality now. I decide right and wrong now. I decide salvation now. It's self-worship. And let me say this. Again, not trying to give offense, but you might take it. There's a lot of really silly gods in the pantheon of gods throughout world history. There's a lot of really dumb ones. Let me suggest to you, if you're anything like me, the dumbest god you could possibly follow is you. You're the worst God you could possibly pick of all the options. And I say that because I know I'm the worst God that I could possibly follow. That's what atheism ultimately is. I have all of these problems and Jesus didn't solve them. So I'll go what? Solve them myself? I'm the answer to my problems? I'm the answer to all of life's mysteries? That's a horrible religion to me. I hate that religion. We all make very poor gods. None of us comes close to Jesus, and neither do any of the gods that the world offers us. Apostates, they take their hurt, and they take their questions, and they want to run away from Christ, and all they're left with is some cold, abstract, incompetent deity, and they still have all their hurts, and they still have all their questions. So I ask you simply, to whom could we go? Who's better than Jesus? Now, what makes Jesus so great? It really can't be answered quickly. That's such a long list. But Peter, I think, sums it up really well with our next two points. Point number two, another reason to stick with Jesus in tough times is because Jesus' gospel saves. Look at verse 68 again. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter is saying that Jesus' words are worth believing no matter how offensive or exclusive they are because of what they do. Jesus' words save us. We believe in Christ by believing his words. I don't have it on the screen, but Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
Christ's words give us salvation. So Peter is willing to stick with Christ because being set free by the truth and having our sins forgiven is worth any persecution this world can throw at us. And this is Christ's own testimony to these apostates, by the way. Look, look back at verse 63. This is what Christ is trying to entice them with. Verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus reminds them as they are in the process of walking away that flesh cannot give life. And so, by the way, Jesus is basically telling them not to read the sermon literally like we talked about last week. Because even if you could for a moment literally, physically consume Christ's body, having his flesh in your intestines is not solving your ultimate problem. Your ultimate problem is not a physical need. It's a spiritual one. The flesh can't save you. You can't eat something and be saved. You can't perform works of the law in order to be saved. You can't earn your salvation. Flesh cannot save. Only the Spirit can save. And so Jesus is saying that my words, which is a spiritual gospel, created and inspired by the Holy Spirit, implied to your spirit spiritually by the Spirit, that solves your spiritual crisis. You need the spiritual truth of God to be saved. The flesh won't save you. Your works won't save you. And this is how Christ's words are spirit and life. They are used by the Spirit to bring us eternal life. And that's why we stick with Christ. Because I ask you, what's more precious and what's more important than the forgiveness of sins? The transformation of our sinful condition. Eternally in fellowship with God forever. What on earth is more precious and more important than life eternal? But the reason Peter puts so much weight on the words of Christ is tied first and foremost to who he is. The reason his words have such a powerful effect is because of who he is. That's why other people's words can't do that. Only the words of Christ can save, and that is because he is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's our third reason, to stick with Jesus even when times are tough, because Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ. Look at verse 69. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. God has revealed to these apostles with certainty of who Christ is. That he is the Holy One of God, which means the Anointed One. And the Anointed One is what the word Christ means. Jesus is God's Christ. Jesus is the Son of God who was sent from eternity into history. And Peter is sure of that. And maybe at this time, Peter can't answer all of your questions about it. And maybe he doesn't understand all of the last theological details of how God can become man and the Son of God can be born of a woman. And maybe he doesn't have all the answers to Jesus' riddle, but he knows who the Christ is and where he came from. And so Peter wants to stick with Christ for a very simple reason. Because Jesus is the most precious thing this per a person can possibly imagine. It's as simple as that. And it is here in Peter's answer that all major blows take place to any notion of the prosperity gospel. Right? Peter here is affirming that Christ is worth following simply for who he is. Peter rejects believing in Christ purely because of what he offers, but primarily because of who he is. 
Peter can stay with Christ, he can say that Christ is worth following even when it brings me suffering because I didn't come to Christ for comfort in the first place. Peter can say Christ is worth following even when my family abandons me because I didn't come to Christ for a family in the first place. Peter is saying Christ is worth following even when I lose my reputation because I didn't come to Christ for a reputation in the first place. If you come to Christ for the right reasons, it's very hard to leave. If you come to Christ thinking that he's promised you money, you'll leave when Christianity costs you your job. But Peter didn't follow Christ because he promised him money or fame or any other carnal, worldly blessings. He came to Christ none other than for the reason that he was convinced that Jesus is the Son of God who gives life to the world. And that, let me suggest to you, that is the only reason you should believe in Christ. If you believe in Christ for any other reason, I just like the morals of Christianity. Well, all my family are Christians, and so I guess I will be too. I'm just trying to... Any other reason, stop being a Christian. It's not going to last anyway. There is one reason and one reason only to come to Christ. It's because He is the Son of God who gives life to the world. Come to Christ because He's God. Come to Christ because He offers you the forgiveness of your sins. Any other reason is an unworthy reason, and it won't last through the difficulties of this life. That's why in in our church here at Redeemer, we follow Jesus not because he makes our lives easy, not because he promises us a bunch of worldly blessings. In this church, we follow Peter's example. We confess Christ. And we follow him no matter what the consequences might bring. Why? Because he is the Son of God. And because his message gives life to a sinful world. And because, quite frankly, nothing the world offers could possibly compare anyway. Anyway. 